When I come up to the uh, front of the hall to give a talk, I like to just pause for a moment and take a moment to express my my respect, my appreciation, my gratitude for the for the Buddha and his teachings and the traditional form of of bowing is something that I find very powerful and touching and this sense that I have of real appreciation for the teachings and how much I feel like I have benefited and so many that I've known have benefited in so many ways that have come through this lineage of of practice of people like ourselves taking time to explore, to reflect, to contemplate. One of the things that the Buddha set out as the framework for the monastic ordained followers, the monks and the nuns in his order, was that they weren't allowed to give a Dharma talk to people who were lying down unless they were ill or injured and really needed to be. And uh, it's really okay if your body needs to be there, but if it's just because it's a bit more comfortable, I'd invite and encourage you to sit up a little bit if, if you can. And if you can't, that's all right. There's something that, in a, in a way, we find a balance. And yeah, sit up against a wall or in a chair if, if, that would, if that would support your body. There's something about, the, uh, in a way, the, the good fortune of receiving the Dharma teachings that uh, really, I appreciate that sense of uh, uprightness for. And... Uh, what I'd like to speak about this evening is one of the, the core teachings of the Buddha, areas of reflection that he invited us to engage with. And I like to frame this, this, this theme as the reality of change, but, but the impermanence. But the, the title that actually speaks to me that I sometimes use is Living in Rental Accommodation. It's a fundamental aspect of the Buddha's teaching is that things change. That they do not stay as they were. And how they are is not how they will be. And the Buddha spoke of this as the elephant's footprint. It's probably a more relevant metaphor in um, ancient India than for many of us but the elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses the footprints of all the other creatures and this teaching this truth that all which arises is subject to passing this truth of change of impermanence anicca was the word the Buddha used impermanence change it dominates the world of things it encompasses the world of things that have come into being. And in many ways this human existence is like living in rental accommodation. And when I was uh, young and in my early years of teaching, uh, my wife and I spent a couple of years working at, a, I was the resident teacher at a retreat centre in, in Massachusetts, the Insight Meditation Society. And when we came back here to, to Guy House, uh, having met here in the early 90s, um, 
when we came back after a couple of years away, we were, we were very poor, essentially. We, we, we'd just been living in terms of Dharma service for about well, six, six years on my part and three on hers at that time. And uh, we were very kindly invited to come and live in a wing of a large mansion, actually, just to sort of be there to keep an eye on the old man whose home it was and who didn't actually want anyone there to look after him, let alone keep an eye on him, but his family did. So we just got given this little wing of the building, which was actually quite grand and beautiful grounds, and like, wow, living, you know, in this way. And it was wonderful that we had this without having to pay rent. And I think my wife, Catherine, she did a few flower arrangements, but I think I might have cooked him two meals in the, in the whole time where there was a point where he needed some help took him on one trip to a medical appointment. And it was like, wow, how lovely. We were given, gifted this place to be. And then about a year after we got there, the same very kind and lovely people who'd invited us to come and stay said and said to us very kindly, could you leave now, please? And it was like, well, we can't argue, can we? And a few, after about a year of sort of moving from one place to another, never really quite landing um, beyond that. Actually, no, it was more like a couple of years, actually, now I remember. Some friends of ours um, came into some inheritance, friends I knew from travelling and practising together in, in Asia, and they bought a house, and it was a big house, and they said, oh, we'd like to live with other people. Would you like to come and live with us? And we thought, lovely, and you know, we're paying rent, but reduced, and that, because we're friends and sort of supporting the Dharma, and... Uh, and about a year and a half after we moved in with our friends, they, in one of our regular house meetings, they said, we'd like you to move out. <laughs> and, you know, trying to take these things personally. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? This human existence. We get invited to come in, but we didn't decide it. We're here, and this body, this mind, this heart, this life, in some ways it's temporary accommodation. And the landlord is unpredictable. Really. We don't know when this situation will change. So the Buddha suggested, invited, encouraged that on a regular basis we should just pause with this. Contemplate. And the, the particular contemplation here is Everything that is mine, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. And I touched a little on this last night. We know this, it's, it's, it's inevitable, and yet something turning towards it is actually really important for us. Something powerful can happen when we acknowledge, and of course, understandably, with sorrow, with sadness, with grief perhaps, it's not inappropriate to have a, a human heart response to that reality, both in the recognising that one day it will be so, and equally in the, and perhaps more so, when such endings, passings, changes actually take place. But often we don't, do we? We don't really acknowledge it. We don't really take that on. We don't really face that simple thing that we, we know it's like this. And it's only when it's actually happening to us or just happened or about to happen that we go, oh, oh gosh, that's right. 
Or maybe, no, no, it shouldn't be. Why is this happening? And for the Buddha in his journey, in his life, it was just one of the fundamental elements that provoked him into the journey, into the search, into the looking for spiritual understanding. He, he said, why should I spend my life seeking after things that do not last? When I do not last, why should I spend my life? I who am subject to birth, aging, decay, death. Why should I spend my life chasing other things which are also subject to aging, sorry, birth, aging, decay, death? Again, as I touched on last night, that sense of, oh, yeah, this is how things are. So there's something powerful about this reflection. There's something powerful about this acknowledgement and the way it can help us orient our life. It doesn't mean we necessarily, oh, okay, so, you know, I'm just now going to go quit my job, abandon my partner, leave my kids, leave my... I don't have any children, but leave you know all the things of my life and go out onto some spiritual journey. That's not what I'm suggesting here. Um, though sometimes that might be one's response. It's more like to look and see, ah, oh, okay, do I live according to this understanding? Like we, we know change, we know impermanence. No no one from I don't know, probably some quite young age, children, I'm sure if you asked them, do things always stay the same? They'd say, No. They, they could tell, just like we could if you asked us. But do we live according to that? You know, when, when it's raining, do we start to feel miserable? Because it's raining again and, and it's always raining here. But actually, sometimes it's almost as if we expect it's going to always be like this. Or alternately, I had this kind of tragically funny experience many years ago coming to teach a retreat here in summer following a really hot week. And I spent quite a lot of time thinking, what shall I put in? What, which, um, I didn't quite know if I had enough of the right sort of clothes that were tidy enough for really hot weather to be, not that we dress formally, but try and dress, you know, not too scruffy. Um, and I sort of sweated over this a little bit while I was getting things into my bag to come here because it had been really hot all week. And, of course, a day or two after I arrived, it turned cold and wet and rainy. I went back to look in my bag and like, I hadn't brought a jumper. I hadn't brought a coat. It's like, this is England. I've lived here long enough. But something in me had imagined it was going to stay sunny for the whole week I was teaching here. And it didn't. And what, in a way, the surprising thing is not that the weather changed. The surprising thing is that I, and I'm someone who talks about this and tells other people about it, um, managed to completely not see that my mind had locked on to that sense of what is now will continue. And even made a problem out of the anticipated further week of sunny weather because I was going to run out of clean short sleeve shirts. I don't own many short sleeve shirts just because it's usually not that warm. T-shirts, yeah. Anyway, don't need to get into my clothing choices. Um... It's just interesting, isn't it, to hold ourselves with some compassion also for how we do that. To notice this way that we can sometimes look into the world is to 
in a way engages one of the fundamental misperceptions that we get caught in that lead us into entanglement in life because of not seeing and understanding what's actually going on, how it's happening. When we see that which is impermanent to be permanent, when we imagine that which is subject to change somehow to not be subject to change, we get into a, a difficult relationship with with it because we're not seeing clearly what's going on you know sometimes when we're practicing and um, things are settling and it goes ah yes yes that's this is ah oh, this is I was told about this you know this is I've been waiting for this or this I remember this from that first retreat all those years ago I've been trying to get back here but something like that or, or that sense of yes good quote good meditation you know there's no such thing as good meditation I hope but um Something in us doesn't know that because it knows when it likes it and it feels pleasant and it looks like we think it should as in calm, peaceful, enjoyable, maybe even blissful. And we say good meditation. It's like, oh, wow, okay, yeah. Hmm, what did I do? Oh, I must have been, I had a little bit less lunch or maybe that nap, that was it, the nap did it, yeah. Hmm. And then the mind starts to go, oh, wow, yeah, this, this, this retreat's a bit short, really, maybe. You know, maybe I should do a longer retreat, you know, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a three-month retreat, you know, a traditional long retreat. And then before long, we've sort of projected the sense of, oh, this deep, calm, peaceful, blissful meditation, retiring to the cave, wearing a robe, sort of supporters outside, bringing offerings. And then suddenly, oh, we wake up and we realize, oh my gosh, I got completely lost in a fantasy based on the projection of the idea that this pleasant meditative experience will continue forever. And noticing that, we go, oh, oh my gosh, I've been practicing for the whole retreat and I've completely blown it. I'm useless, I'm hopeless, um, I can't meditate at all, I've got no wisdom, I think I might as well go home right now. No point to wait till tomorrow. It's gone. And in that moment, we project that moment of getting lost or that kind of delusion of a, a story we got caught in we make that our whole story and equally reinforce that as this is the way it will be from now and neither of those projections of continuity are true but we do that so easily so often to notice when we encounter difficult emotions or mind states or other experiences that often that sense of I could, meet, I could handle it for now, but often what's most difficult about it is the sense that I can't handle it forever. I can't manage this discomfort or distress if it keeps going. And of course, if we look at it, we see right now we are managing it. We might not be enjoying it or liking it, but we're here, it's here. We're surviving it at the very least. And we can't handle the, the future of it because it doesn't exist. So that's actually accurate. We can't handle the unpleasant, difficult experience in the future because it's not there and neither are we. But the way our mind tends to move takes us there and we get lost. We disconnect from where we are and again it's that projection into the future of this experience will continue. And often with it the fear is that if I don't somehow fight it, I'll be stuck with it forever. And we find ourselves battling against it or rejecting the experience. 
And yet if we see, if we watch, we notice that just as the weather changes, so too our experience does. And one sitting is wonderful and we think we've cracked it. And the next sitting, sitting is absolutely terrible and we feel like we're lost. And the sitting after that is just kind of somewhere in the middle and it's like, oh, that's right, it's like this. And this isn't because we're doing a meditation retreat. This is because that's what goes on in our lives. We don't always see it so clearly. So notice if we start using language that's sort of like always or never, that sort of assumes a solidity of the experience, that it's in a certain frame. Or, you know, sometimes we get that sense on the retreat and it's like, oh, we kind of relax and we start to sense it's like it could go on forever. Now, maybe not on the evening of the last night where we have a sense it's coming to an end, but then we might be holding a sort of a more, ah, oh, it's going to end, as if it ends forever, as if it can't begin again at some point further along. And this habitual way of, we relating, of relating is something to really notice, to look and see. The French philosopher Gaillot, he said, if we know but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. So we might say, I know things change, but if I don't live as if I know that, then it suggests we don't really understand it fully yet. And the process of insight, of developing wisdom, is the transformative journey of correcting our misperceiving, our misconceiving, our misunderstanding. And in that, it's a movement from an unawareness, an unknowing, an uncomprehendingness to wisdom. And our misunderstanding, miscomprehension, the way we get caught, it's to a large extent because we haven't carefully examined our experience. We tend to think or imagine that just our conceiving of it shows it to us, but it doesn't. When we think and know, oh yeah, things change. Yeah, I heard about that in the Dharma talk long ago. But that won't do it for us. It might invite us to look to see more carefully, however. And that's important. I remember some years ago now, when I was reflecting on this, at a certain point an image or a metaphor came to me to understand how this process happens. And it's like as if we're driving in a car on a straight road. And we look out the front windscreen. On a straight road, it looks like what's out there in the distance ahead of us, even though we're approaching it at you know, 50, 60 miles an hour, it looks like it's not changing at all out there on a long straight. We don't have so many of those in this country, but you may know what I mean or in other countries. Um, and if we were to look out the back wind screen, now don't do that while you're driving, obviously, but um, if you were to look out there for a while, you'd see that's not really changing either. If you're driving along on a long straight road. It looks like it's just a fixed image. If you look out the side window, down at the side of the road, what do you see? It's a blur of things going past so quickly you can barely register them.
when we're relating to our experience, a lot of the time we're relating to the past and the future. Whatever we see in front of us that we imagine as future is fragments of the past that we've somehow managed to project in front of ourselves. What we remember of the past is just a few fragments. Talk to anyone who was somewhere when something happened where you were and find out how much you share of the picture you've got. And some of it you'll recognize, that helps you know you were there together, but some of it is completely different. To have a full memory of an experience would require the amount of time it took for the experience and the amount of space. And we don't have that in the memory, we just have a snapshot of fragments. And it's fixed. It's just a few pieces, two-dimensionally stitched together. It's not to say it isn't without value. But what we do, and the only way we can relate to what we call future, is by somehow imagining a variation of, as in the same as or different than, that. There's nothing else we've got to do that with. It's either in relationship to by being similar to or different than what happened before. And likewise, it's in front of us as the future, and it is pretty two-dimensional. Even though it might look complicated and exciting or scary, depending on the, the flavor of our mind state at the current time or what we're thinking of. But it's a bit like driving on that straight road. It's not changing. The image of the future, because it's a construct, can look pretty solid. And likewise the past. But if we look, and this is what we do when we're practicing, we look at what's happening right here and now. That's like looking out at the immediate location in the car, at the side of the road. And initially things are going past so quickly we can barely see them. And so, in practice, we start to slow down. And we train ourselves to see what's happening. And what we see is there's this flow and movement of experience. Giving attention to the present moment, to where we are, allows us to experientially encounter the truth of impermanence, anicca. Rather than intellectually, to experientially encounter this is like looking out the side of the vehicle while driving at speed. It's a blur, it's a flicker. Things are moving so quickly, in fact. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations. How many have you had today? Hundreds, thousands, more, beyond counting for sure. Each of them somewhat similar and somewhat different to ones we've had before. Where have they gone? What happened to them? Where did they come from? How do they arise? It's like this remarkable process of experience arising and dissolving. And this is what we're encountering. Sight, smell, taste, touch, thoughts and feelings. There isn't something else that we're encountering. I mean, again, if, I've, if you can have a sense, that, or your senses there is, you know, be interested to hear, but sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, images, this flow of experience, that's what's happening. And we somehow try and take hold of all of that to say, this is me. But it's actually fluid. It's some, not something we can quite get hold of. And yet we can try really hard to do so. 
The Buddha suggested we'd be better off identifying with our body than our mind and heart because at least the body changes more slowly. Taking this to be us. And it's not to say that our heart, our mind, our body are somehow nothing to do with who and what we are or somehow not related to what is most fundamental and, and what it means to be this human being that we are but not necessarily in the way we might have imagined. And so this can be a bit, you know, tricky or challenging sometimes for us to contemplate and to see how to relate to this. It's, it's like the image that comes to mind for me is um, like children building sandcastles on the beach, how we relate to existence. Because... When you build sandcastles, you know where you have to build a sandcastle. Have you ever tried to build a sandcastle below the low tide zone? Like to below where the tide... You can't build a sandcastle because it's full of water. Have you ever tried to build a sandcastle above the high tide zone? The sand's really dry. You can't make a thing out of it. Where do you build a sandcastle between the low and the high tide zone? Everybody builds sandcastles there. And of course, at some point, the tide comes in. It's the, the nature of the substance of life that allows things to be constructed out of it is very much the same condition that means inevitably they will dissolve. And we could imagine children crying, adults too perhaps, as the tide rolls in. It's like, whoa, there goes the sandcastle. Or kind of dancing with the waves as whatever has been constructed dissolves. And so we're again, we're invited and asked by, in these teachings to contemplate this, to reflect on this, to consider this. And of course, you know, there's many aspects about this teaching that we can find actually aren't all just, oh gosh, that sounds like a lot of bad news, here we are again, more bad news, you know. It's also actually really good news and, you know, things would be pretty crowded if everyone who'd ever been in this hall was still here. You know, quite apart from being very COVID unsafe. Um, it's like the fact that we have to go is good news for the people who want to come next week. We might not feel so happy about it. But it's like, ah, oh, okay, that's it. Things move and new things come. You know, when our experience is difficult, of course, then it's great. Bring on impermanence, you know. I'd really like this painful thing to go away. Of course, it doesn't work quite like that, does it? But nonetheless, there's some space that comes to us. We can't, you know, come on, Anicca, come on, Anicca. Come on, impermanence, come on, impermanence. We can't get it to hurry up because we'd like something to change. But just contemplating, oh, this too shall change. This too shall pass when faced with the difficult or the challenging, can be a real solace and support. I don't know when, I don't know how, but this too will not be forever. And so giving attention to impermanence, noticing change, supports and encourages us to let go and let be. To let go of things we're trying to hold on to, knowing we can't. 
to let be things we might wish to resist because we see they'll change anyway and not according to our pushing on them usually. Giving space to experience, to life, to ourselves ultimately. And as we do, we see that this quality of change, of impermanence, of not staying the sameness, is actually the basis of so much that we love. Real beauty arises almost always in relationship to something that's subject to change. That's you know, have you ever gone into those into a restaurant where there's some really, really good artificial plastic flowers? And at first glance it's like, I'm not sure is that a real one or is it not? And actually what tells you it's not is it doesn't have any sort of slightly brownie curled up dying bits. It's just all perfectly looking like an alive one. But it's dead. Or it's not alive in the sense of what we maybe are looking for. And it doesn't touch the heart in the same way. It can't. Whereas flowers, and you know, someone's kindly removed all the bits that were falling but there's always this some sort of thing about it's okay to leave them too and just see yeah beautiful flowers and they're beautiful because they're so briefly flowering that's part of it you know if there was a sunset and we're enjoying a sunset the thing about a sunset is it's sort of rippling from, you know, sort of yellow into gold into reds and purples and then grey and green and all the, you know, if it was like just this glorious picture of a sunset, there'd be a, we'd watch it for a little while and go, oh, okay, what's for dinner? You know, it's something about the fact that it's slowly disappearing as we watch and love it that touches us, that speaks to us and... At a monastery in, in East Sussex, Chittaviveka, or Chittavis Buddhist Monastery, where I have spent a lot of really time I regard as fortunate and blessed. There's, there's a little, um, there's now a whole sort of, in a way, grove, but when I was first going there, it was just a place with a little sign. And it had on it a little saying by, a, I believe, a Japanese poet whose name I don't remember, but I remember what it said the first time I read it. It said, The cherry blossoms cover the hillside for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not cherish them so. And underneath it is written a single date, and then a name, Little Sam. And I remember when I first encountered it, and even now when I talk about it, and I've talked about it plenty of times, I'm so touched by the, the sense of the preciousness and the beauty of a life that was just for one day, it would seem. Not less precious or less beautiful for its incredible brevity and impermanence. And so we can contemplate in this way, we can consider in this way the the beauty, the preciousness, the way we can be touched by life is in relationship to this character, this characteristic, this aspect of its nature, of how it presents 
And when we see that this is how it is, I think we find some space with the imperfections of life because it's not forever. When we moved in with our friends that time, um, we actually now live just probably a mile down the road from that place. Um, Much less grand accommodations, but nonetheless. um, When we lived there, we moved in. It's like this amazing house and great big grounds with these friends who've just put a house fortunate. And they went and said, oh, this is nice. Let's move that wall over there. Let's when we have a sense that it's ours, and this is a long-term thing, we then start trying to fix it and improve things. Have you noticed? When we're just passing through, it's like, oh, this is pretty good, it'll do. There's no judgment of them. I mean, we've got our own place now. And yeah, I, I, we, we adjust it too. But that sense of, oh, how to hold my life if I know it's not forever. There's a way in which it's like, oh, it's okay that it's not a perfect fit that I'd have put the door over there, or the window a bit bigger. It's like, ah, this is how it is. And how amazing, I've got one of these to live in. A house, a life. In a sense, that's part of the gift of this contemplation, is understanding and appreciating what we have. Understanding that this body, this mind, our thoughts, our very existence, in some ways we could say it's borrowed. Or it's on loan. And it gives us some sense of of space also. With our emotions to remember that they're changing. And we've talked and touched some on the, the difficult states of heart and mind we encounter. And that meditation practice we can sort of be engaging with and just understanding that oh yeah just like the weather as river was saying it's, it changes it moves and uh, Khalil Gibran and the prophet he he says if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons which pass over your fields. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. And I find these words really speak to me of what it is to hold our human, the fullness of our human lives with care. And naturally, of course, we'd love to live in the summer of exuberant blossoms and, you know, delicious fruit and all of the the fullness and richness. But the nature of summer is that it can't sustain that and it slows down into autumn dies back into winter and winter it can be hard cold dry arid or wet but out of that is born the freshness and the new life of spring and that cycle and that movement of life continues and that while of course we might wish not to have to 
experience winter. Without it, spring is not possible. And so we can bow our head, perhaps, or just, you know, okay. It's tough right now. But this too will change. And the very nature of the circumstance that brings something, it equally flows into the next. So we practice in relationship to this wisdom, this perception, this understanding of impermanence, of anicca, of the reality of change. We practice learning to let things move, to allow things to flow. It doesn't mean we can't contribute to or orient towards things in ways to try and support and, you know, to, to grow a garden. But to understand our garden will be influenced by the spring and the summer and the winter and the weather. It's not just ours to say, I'm going to have some of these and they'll turn up now, please. There's so many more other conditions that go into it. And, I mean, literally gardening, but equally the, the gardening of our heart that we could understand as a way of, of our heart and mind that we could understand as a spiritual practice, the, the cultivating of what is wholesome and beautiful, the developing of what is beneficial and blessed, and at the same time the working with the sort of the, the difficult, we could say, weeds or sort of habitual sort of, you know, structures that don't allow for so much richness so easily. that recognizing of impermanence of change it's what allows us to let go in the end so much just oh okay not in control of this let go Ajahn Chah who was a much loved uh, teacher and guide for many in the in the 20th century in Thailand uh, and actually the uh, in a way, the, the teacher from whom the lineage of monasteries in, in the UK has, has came, and including Chittas, Chittavaveka, as I mentioned before. Some of you will know, and perhaps love as I do. Uh, he, he, he said once, let go a little, and you will know a little peace. Let go a lot, and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely, and you will know complete peace and natural freedom. We're asked to turn towards this experience of being here, now, alive, awake, or at least some of the time awake it seems, but in a journey of awakening. To not be seeking from the experiences, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, that somehow they would give us something they can't give us, which might be forever. Because it's not in their nature to do that. It's not, there's, there's so much that is offered, but that doesn't come in this way. So it's not to reject or to dismiss the so many blessed things that do come through the forms of changing life. 
but that the, the Dharma teachings, spiritual teachings that we're engaged with here, speak to to discovering what we may know when we don't hold on to, when we let go of life. This changing, fluid, dynamic, beautiful and challenging ripple of experience that pours through our entire existence. It pours through sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch. And the Buddha said, there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying. And because there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying, there is release, there is liberation in the midst of that which is born, become, and dying. In some contexts, it's a controversial statement and the range of translations of it are considerable. So this is just one articulation of that. But it's pointing to something that spiritual teachings point to. And it's important we just allow ourselves to consider there may be more to discover here than just what shows in the flow of experience. But perhaps what is it revealed through it? In my Early years of practice, I spent quite some time in Asia and I was fortunate to practice at a, the, the Thai Buddhist monastery in Budgaya, the, uh, the small Indian village, not so small anymore, um, where n- nearby the, the tree that is where, where the Buddha was uh, awakened two and a half thousand years ago. And um, well, the tree is actually the, the grandchild of the actual tree, but it's, it's the tree. Um, and anyway, I was, I was at this monastery and I was practicing there, having been there the year before. And one of the things that I loved so much practicing was that there was these puppies, like monasteries in Asia, uh, a kind of a bit of a sanctuary for any number of homeless beings, from chickens to goats to dogs, puppies, and sometimes elderly villagers who don't have a retirement plan, and if they don't have family to look after them, they sometimes just come to the monastery. But anyway, there's always puppies at the monasteries, um, at least at this one. And I was just really enjoying them. And the, they would, you know, when you're doing slow walking meditation, they just run up full of life and just bounce into your one leg that you were standing on while slowly walking to see if you're really paying attention, I imagine. Or if, you know, you're putting your plate down for a moment and come up and help you with because you obviously got too much of that food, you know. And I just loved them. I just was so delighted by these little creatures. And as I said, I'd been there on a retreat the year before. And then at some point, I'd, I guess I'd been there a week or more at this point, it suddenly struck me with a complete like thunderclap. I thought they were the same puppies. They were the same puppies as the one I'd been with last year. And 
obvious. We, we know. Of course they weren't the same puppies. Those ones had grown up. But this kind of shock of, okay, again, slightly embarrassing. I thought they were the same puppies. Obviously they're not. But also at the same moment, there was this sort of insight of, ah, oh, the puppies keep changing. But puppy nature is unchanging. What was animating, what was shining, what the, the, the manifestation, the expression of these beings was exactly the same. And one sees, oh, that's how you get fooled. And you think it's the same puppy, but it's not. And yet there's something, it's showing up, it's revealing, it's pointing to, it's expressing something that is unchanging. And so as we practice, I think we're asked, we're invited, we're encouraged here. Not just here, but in our life equally to, to look and see, to be curious, to be interested. What more might I discover in this dropping into, opening into, the flow of life as it unfolds? Not holding on, not resisting. Not trying to figure out, but nor imagining we've already figured it out. And it's almost like the, you know, one or two people have referred to, and I think River and I also, to the sense of a certain substantiality that, or a texture almost we start to feel in the meditation hall together as we practice. It's like we feel this sort of resonance, like there's something there, but... It's also not that there is nothing there. And it's almost like it develops a weightiness or a, a texture, even though there's nothing there, clearly. I mean, air, obviously, but it's not the air. And in the deepening and the developing and the maturing of our practice, it's like this heart-mind this capacity for wakefulness, it, it almost like it gathers a certain weightiness to it as it's collected, as it's enriched through this practice that allows it to sink below the surface of appearance, of manifestation, of all the things, beautiful, blessed and difficult and demanding and ordinary and all of that, to start to sink below. Not literally, physically, we're not going to disappear through the floor, but to sink somehow, it's like we start to be able to see and to recognize more. And what we may begin to see, to discover, to realize, to understand, speaks to us of that which I believe the Buddha is speaking to as well. And the wise women and men and beings, humans of all genders, who have practiced and shared their wisdom throughout the ages. Who are part of this living current of awakening, of which we too are part here.
I'd like to finish with a quote from Ajahn Sachito. I think I mentioned him already, my teacher, in, uh, who, who's based in this Chathurst Buddhist monastery. Um, and he, he, he actually came to the, the monastery in Thailand when I was practicing there and gave a talk while on pilgrimage. And um, one of the things he said, I copied from the tape recording, and it's eventually been published, which was wonderful, and a whole book of the, the pilgrimage. But anyway, he said, and I'll finish with this. He said, there is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is where we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honor truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. Let's sit together for a few moments. May we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to deeply understand the changing nature of things. And may we come to realize the Dharma, the truth, that is unchanging. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the welfare of all that lives.
thank you for your practice, for your presence, for your attention. And for your aspiration. Whatever that might be. It's time now for some walking. Or standing or continuing sitting if you like. And we'll come back together. If the bell could ring at uh, five to nine, please. We have the sitting at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.